Well, we are, um, we're continuing this week in our, in our study of church practice. As you remember, uh, a few weeks back, however many, it's hard to keep track now, we talked about the idea of religious practice. We talked about, uh, we, we talked to the story where Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders of his day, wondering why his disciples did not do the things they felt like they should be doing, why they didn't practice religion the way they felt like they should practice it. And we talked about why it is we do what we do and how we can begin, if we're not careful, um, to practice our faith in a way that becomes disconnected from what it's really all about. And, uh, and the next week after that, we, we, of course, had our anniversary, and we celebrated that, and we talked about why we serve. Serving is one of our church practices and why that's central to who we are. Um, and we talked about why we uh, gather as a community and why we uh, celebrate community and uh, practice community. And all these are uh, talks that you can go back and see online or, or listen to on podcast. And tonight we want to talk about worship, uh, which I know is a very churchy word. And I know it might mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people in the room. But we want to get to what it really means and why it's important. Um, and, and as we have in other weeks, uh, I'm going to start by reading Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, because this has kind of been our jumping off point. It's, it's that real quick glimpse that we get of Jesus' disciples, after Jesus is no longer with them, how they begin to practice living life uh, after Christ. When Jesus is no longer in their presence, how do they act and interact with each other? And we we're probably going to use this verse every week and talk about it and then get into the specifics of the topic that week. But it says this, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to anyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. And so again, we see this immediate commitment to community, immediate commitment to gathering together, to sharing, to this new way of living in the world. And tonight we're going to talk about our commitment and why we are committed to the idea of worship, communal worship. And, and, and to do this, I want to talk through a short passage in Romans 12. And this is one of my favorite passages. In fact, I think it might be the first sermon I preached in Hattiesburg. Uh, it may have been the, the one I, when I was trying to get hired at a church when we first moved here that I preached to get hired. Um, although I'm sure it's not going to be exactly the same sermon. But it's been such a transformative uh, idea to me. And it takes place in the middle of the book of Romans, which is a very heavy book. If you've ever tried to read through the book of Romans, uh, it's, it's hard to get around, right? There's a lot of theology in it. It's long. And it's written from uh, Paul to the church that's in Rome. And Paul doesn't even know the church in Rome. He's never been there yet. But the church of Rome is going through this very specific problem. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this context, but I think it's important uh, just to kind of get a 10,000-foot view, which is the church of Rome is trying to figure out how to practice faith together with different kinds of people. So what happened in history at this time was uh, Emperor Claudius uh, had an edict uh, that they called the Edict of Claudius, cleverly named. And what the Edict of Claudius did was, uh, at that point in, in history in Rome, uh, they had kind of started to start blaming Jewish people for a lot of things that were going wrong. And so what they did is they told all the Jewish people to leave Rome. Well, that included a lot of the early Christians, right? Because Christianity was, in its first inception, was a mostly Jewish 
uh, kind of sect of religion. And so what happened was you had this early uh, kind of infant church, this young church that had some Gentile believers and had some Jewish believers that were trying to figure out how to do this thing together. And then all the Jewish Christians had to leave. And the Gentile Christians were left to try and figure out how to do it without the Jewish influence, right? And then one of a couple things happened. Um, at some point, either those Jewish Christians came back and, and then they were looking at the way the Gentiles were doing church and religion and they were going, wait a minute, that's not how it's supposed to go. Uh, you've forgotten about all the Jewish stuff that we were doing and that stuff is really important stuff. So we need to start getting that going back again. And the Gentiles were like, actually, no, it's been going pretty good. Um, a lot, a lot more people want to join without the circumcision thing. It's been great, you know, and there's, you know, some other things that we'd like to maybe keep in place. And, or there, it's possible that you just only had Gentiles still at this point, but some of them were still trying to follow the Jewish rules and some of them were not. But there's this tension. And I would argue that the entire book of Romans is Paul trying to lay out the theology and everything else to try and get these two people at the same table of communion, right? First two chapters particularly, you'll see Paul building up uh, making kind of people who have a uh, more Jewish background and feel really positive about that, really building them up and kind of talking about all the things the Gentiles do out there in the world and all the things they're not supposed to be doing. And then, and then, then Romans 2 starts off with, you know, but you can't judge because you're no better than them, right? And so Paul's just constantly doing this thing where he's just kind of bringing everyone back down to level. And that happens all throughout the book. And I would argue for me, when I read Romans, uh, chapter 12 is where it's just a pinnacle of it. This is kind of where it really peaks and all of it begins to come together. And this is where we get this nice, tidy little definition of what worship is. And it says this, Romans 12, 1 through 2. And we'll end up, honestly, reading the rest of the chapter in a few minutes, but I want to start here. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I love this scripture, and I, and I love particularly how it starts, because he starts with the backdrop. He starts with what he calls the, basically it's a lens, right? How we should view everything. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you, in view of God's mercy. And we should stop there before we go any farther. In view of. In other words, I want you to see everything else I'm getting ready to say through the lens of God's mercy. Before anything else, before we talk about anything else, before we try to understand anything else, remember, all of this is a gift. It's all a gift. Remember God's mercy. Remember God's grace that you did nothing to earn this life, you did nothing to warrant what you have right now, even again, the, the breath in your lungs is a gift from God. It's all a gift. Life itself is unwarranted favor from the Creator. Remember, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, don't forget that it's all a gift. And I, and I want to stop there and just kind of rest on that for a moment because I'm convinced that living in view of God's mercy is the most incredibly difficult and rare thing. At least it is for me. I don't know about you, but I walk through most of my life on some level believing I'm being shortchanged. And objectively, I've got nothing to feel shortchanged about. 
I've received way more than I ever deserve to receive. I, I'm, all of my life is an act of grace and mercy from the creator above, and yet I still spend most of my time feeling like I'm kind of getting a little ripped off. It is really hard to live in view of God's mercy. Because when that lens is snapped into place, when you truly view everything in your own life through that lens of mercy, it changes everything. I mean, I've had a couple of moments of true epiphany in my life, and, and, I, and I'm sure you've had them too, where, where a light switch really turned on and it created this kind of watershed moment where there was a before and an after for you. Maybe that was a relationship or maybe it was some theological thing you came, you, you came to realize, whatever it might be. I've had a couple of those. And when I was 19, I had one of those moments as I was, for some reason, I don't know where I had, what I had heard, if I'd heard like a talk or read my own Bible or done what, but it was kind of wrestling with this idea of grace and of mercy. And I'd heard it my entire life. I grew up in church. I grew up in Christian school. I was in one of the two out of six out of seven days a week my entire life. But I can, I can remember the couch I was kind of laying on and having deep thoughts in college, as you, know, as you do because we didn't have the internet. <laughs> and I remember, I, I can still see the room I was in. I remember laying on that couch and I was having, and I don't even remember what it was about. I was having an internal disagreement with God about something that wasn't going my way uh, that he just wasn't doing correctly. I had a lot of those. And I honestly have no idea what it was about, but it was a big deal then, which shows you how big a deal it really was because I can't even remember what it was. But I wasn't real happy with God. I was letting God know about it. I was, you know, uh, fuming about it. And for some reason in that moment, I was able to, uh, by the grace of God, whatever, kind of step out of my own body and kind of see myself objectively and hear myself objectively for a moment. And it occurred to me as someone who went out in the hallway when I was four years old and said the prayer with Miss Wendy, my preschool teacher, and, and had been in church and, you know, been a Christian ever since. And Miss Wendy was very pretty, and I didn't want some private time with her, but I did believe the prayer when I said it. I mean, there was, it was, it was, there was mixed reasons, but as much as a four-year-old convenient, I meant it. But I, I, it occurred to me, I, I heard myself uh, in a new way, and it occurred, it occurred to me that I probably said at a rate to 100, of one, 100 to 1, I probably say, give me to God compared to thank you. And suddenly I began to think about this idea of grace and mercy that I had kind of been hearing about or studying about. This idea that everything I have is a gift from God. This idea that I did nothing to warrant it, but God has just freely given me all this stuff. And that if that grace was true, if it really is all a gift, then why am I spending 99% of my relationship with God stamping my feet and demanding more of what I don't even deserve? And it just flipped something in me. Why is my relationship with God based solely in what more I want from God and never in what God has given me? This sounds like a familiar posture to all of you who are parents, right? How many of you times have you had that conversation with your kids? But we're all children in this sense. Sometimes for good reasons. Right now, uh, this year, whew, there's been some good reasons to not be real happy with the way things have gone. Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for not so good reasons. It is incredibly difficult 
to live in view of God's mercy, to remember this is all a gift. But Paul contends that in order for us to understand worship, in order for us to understand how to practice this faith together, we must live our lives with this lens first. We must keep ever before us the fact that this is all a gift. It is all grace. It is all mercy. And this will fundamentally change our posture. Whenever you become keenly aware that it's all a gift, it changes the way you act. And this is a really stupid example. It's just the one I can think of. I've had one brand new car in my life. And when I, was, uh, when I first started seminary and I had worn out my 87 Accord hatchback, uh, which, you know, the ladies loved. Uh, and I had driven every mile you could on that thing. And I guess, I don't know if my, my parents must have had a good year. My dad must have had a good year at work or whatever. And he said, I think this was the kind of the, you know, we're done with you kind of move. Because I was like 22 or whatever. And he said, we're going to get you a new car. And uh, that way you can, because I was doing some traveling and speaking and those kind of things. And, and that way you can be on the road and we'll feel safe about it. We're going to get you. And here's your budget. Uh, and it's, you know, whatever you can get for that, go for it. If it's used or new or whatever, go for it. And I, and I lucked out, man. I went to this lot where they had like a, 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 like a two-year-old brand new car when the, the, the two years next model was getting ready to come out. And they were just trying to get rid of it. And I got it for cheaper than you can get most of, most of used cars in a lot. I mean, and it was beautiful. It was this little two-door Acura and it was black on black and black leather and stick shift and it was shiny, and it was, un- I've never, I never had a car that anyone ever looked at. I mean, people, again, loved that hatchback uh, that I had before, but no one had ever, I never driven a car that got looks. And I drove off that lot, a little herky-jerky, because I was still kind of learning stick shift, but I was not going to let that stop me from getting that car. And I drove off that lot feeling like the world's coolest guy. I was young 20s, had really cool long hair, if you ask me. And I'm driving around Athens, Georgia, and I am feeling myself. I am feeling good. And, I, and, I, and people are looking at me. I mean, it's shiny. Everyone, you know, people are looking at the car. And I remember pulling up to the parking lot where I had friends. And, oh, man, look at that. Oh, yeah. And almost, almost immediately when people started going, ooh, look at that car. I immediately found myself going, eh, my parents bought it for me. Like I, like I just couldn't, I couldn't maintain the coolest if somehow I had come up with the money on my own as a graduate student with exactly zero dollars, living on like, $500 a month at the time that I had come up with enough money for this brand new car. I just couldn't do it because it was a gift. Someone just gave it to me. I, I couldn't like ride on those coattails for whatever reason. It just it, When you understand that it's a gift, it changes the way you handle that which you've been given, right? And, and you and I have all met people who don't understand that and, they're, and it's just the worst. People who act like, you know, that they smacked it out of the park and they were born, you know, rounding third base, you know? In view of God's mercy, all of the Christian life should be led with that lens first. It's all a gift. And then Paul goes on to say this, brothers and sisters, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Because it's all a gift, give it back. Because it's all a gift, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Offer your hands, your feet, your words, your actual life, your body. Not some ethereal, spiritual feeling that we have. Your actual life. Give it back. Since it's all a gift, 
offer your body as a living sacrifice. And of course, that term living sacrifice is an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not sure how much, how familiar you are with Jewish religious practice or any of the religious practices, but most of the sacrifices don't walk off the altar when they're done. Sacrifices tend to be pretty dead. But Paul uses this interesting term, live as a sacrifice. Paul is suggesting that we can serve as a sacrifice to others and to God in the way we live our lives. In the view of the fact that all this is a gift, we can live it by giving it away. We can live it by giving away what has been so freely given to us, that we can have a posture towards God and towards each other that is not just one of receiving, not just one of consuming, but one of giving, of sacrificial love. And there may not be a concept more foreign to us, right? I mean, we especially, we are a consumer culture. We are defined by what we take in and what we grab a hold of. Every single one of us is a number on a spreadsheet in someone's algorithm just by the phone we own and the stuff we order and everything else. We are defined by consumption. And Paul is suggesting, suggesting that instead of being consumers, we become consumed. And then he says this, in view of God's mercy, offer your body's living sacrifice. This is worship. Whenever, however, we live this kind of life of sacrificial love, it is then that we are truly worshiping God. It is then that we are truly showing who God is in this world. And this, of course, has a ton of implications for us, right? It means that worship can happen anywhere at any time. And it also means that we can come into our communal time here each week, every week, and never actually worship. If we come in here to be entertained or just to consume some music or a talk, I mean, we might get something out of it, and that's great, but I'm not sure that that's worship in and of itself, not by this definition, right? This is supposed to be corporate worship. It's supposed to be us as a people viewing our lives in view of God's mercy and offering ourselves as living sacrifices. This is intended to be corporate worship, a communal exercise in being living sacrifices for each other. We give a couple of hours that we could be doing something else with. And I know I work here, but it's, it, some weeks it's just as hard for me to get here as it is for you. It's a sacrifice. There's probably a good football game on right now, and that's way more entertaining than me. I understand that. I can't compete. We give a couple of hours that we could be spending on something else. We offer to watch each other's kids, even though they're not our jobs. We listen to each other's prayers and heartbreaks, even when things are going well for us and our lives would be a little easier not knowing about what's wrong with your life. We give money that we earned to benefit others who didn't earn it. We practice being a living sacrifice for each other because we understand it's all a gift. And so that we might stand a chance of being that same sort of living sacrifice out there in the world at large. Because if we can't do it in here, I'm not sure we have much of a chance out there. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, or this is your spiritual act of worship, you'll see in other translations. And why do we do all this? Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Why do we do all this? We do this to create new patterns, right? Patterns uh, outline for us. They show us how something is supposed to look, how something fits in the world. When we live in view of the fact that it's all a gift, we make the intentional choice to live a life of sacrificial love for our neighbor, we no longer look like the well-worn patterns of this world. We don't hold the same things up as important or valued or meaningful. We don't subscribe to the same measurements of success or failure, winning or losing, friend or enemy. We are able to see what God's will, God's perfect and pleasing will for us is in this world. In other words, we participate in a new kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, as we say each week, here and now. Because worship restructures our relationship to each other and to this world. Worship has implications. If you have any doubt as to whether or not worship is all about the way it restructures our relationship with each other, just keep reading on in the chapter in Romans 12. Paul spends the next 10 verses or so unpacking a myriad of ways that living as a sacrifice in light of God's mercy makes us entirely peculiar in this world. Here's what it says in the next 12 verses. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I might need new batteries in this if you want to maybe bring me down some. Um, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That is a mouthful. There's a lot of ripples coming from that rock dropping in the water, right? Does that sound at all the way the world works? Does it even sound the way most churches work, it feels like? No, it is peculiar. It is strange. It is a weird way to live. And I would argue that we worship to get weird. Here, I may not need them, but just in case, just two. Vanna White, everybody. Thank you for <laughs> We live in view of God's mercy. We offer ourselves as loving sacrifice in this world, giving back what has been given to us because it is worship. And we worship to become different 
to create new patterns in this world. We worship to get the right kind of weird. In a world that teaches us to consume and self-obsess, we follow God's call to embrace mercy and give ourselves. We choose sacrifice, we choose sincerity, we choose humility, generosity, hospitality, peace, and love of enemy. We get weird and we worship. In the light of the fact that it's all an undeserved gift from God, give away your life for love. be a different kind of people. That is what it means to be a worshiper of God. And you don't have to know the words to the song. You don't have to have all the verses memorized. You don't have to have all the religious practice worked out. You don't have to have all the answers to all the questions. You just have to let God's mercy run its course in your life. That is why we worship. We worship because it's the only reasonable response to the gift we've been given. We worship because sacrificial love is the way to a new world. We worship so that we might be a new people building a peculiar and weird new kingdom in this world, the kind of kingdom this world desperately needs. We worship because in the end, what else really matters? Let's pray. God, first and foremost, thank you. God, we confess that we do not live most of our lives in view of your mercy. That it is so much more natural and so easy for us to look at the landscape around us, uh, to compare ourselves to those that we think have it better than we do, to look on our social media or measure ourselves by whatever thing is out there and convince ourselves that we are somehow being shortchanged. God, forgetting every good gift that has come from your hand. And God, we know that that does not mean this world is perfect. And Lord, we suffer that there is genuine loss and pain and illness and questions and confusion and abuse and fill in the blank. And Lord, we know that you are a God who is with us, a God who has suffered all those same things. But Lord, we pray that you give us your eyes to see. Lord, may we live our lives in view of the fact that this is all a gift. And that true abundance is found in giving our lives back. God, may we as individuals, may we as a community be true worshipers. So that we might show this world a new way to live. God, we do love you and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.